Amen. Little did you know, Jesse, patience is going to play a big role in the sermon this morning. Uh, so this morning we are concluding chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. And chapter 2 is full of pictures that Paul paints for the life and call of those in ministry, those approved workers in the household of God. It is chock full of imagery and illustration. We looked at the devoted soldiers, the disciplined athletes, the dedicated farmers, and this morning will be the dutiful servants of Christ. Uh, I don't think it is coincidental that Paul begins the way he begins in this chapter. Look at the first two verses of chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is the first thing you need to know about ministry. You need the strength of Christ because nothing else will do. You then, my child. The other thing about ministry is it is a generational gift that the fathers and mothers in the faith pass on to those who come later. And that men disciple men, discipling men to lead God's people well. This is why he goes into verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this morning, as we look at our text, um, as we read through these commands, these imperatives are in the singular. That means that Paul is speaking to Timothy directly. Timothy, as the pastor, as the local elder, this is what you need to do. And by implication, any man who is to stand in your office, any man who is to labor alongside you, this is what you need to know. These pastoral principles, though, are applicable to the rest of the church as they usually are. And so we are primarily going to be uh, addressing pastoral responsibility and example this morning. So as it is with expository preaching, last week's text was very different from this one. Last week is this uh, great multi-level uh, illustration of the visible church of God. Um, now this week, we're going to go back into that servant who serves in the house. Remember I said, these are, we have two parallel sections, 14 through 19 and 22 through, through 26. We're looking at the second of those parallel examples, those uh, sections. What we looked at last week was the illustration that binds the two together, gets us to look at both and make sense of both. So um, here's what you need to know. We're not going to talk about anything complicated today. Uh, we're not going to solve any ancient mysteries um, because the, the pastoral books, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, written to individual pastors, have much to say when Paul gets right to the heart of what the church needs and where the church often fails. Because everything we're going to talk about this morning can easily derail the leaders of God. And what happens, sadly... For better or for worse, the church is going to be a reflection of its leaders. If you have poor, ungodly leaders, undisciplined leaders, you're going to have poor, undisciplined members. But if you have faithful leaders, we follow those who follow Christ. The church will be faithful. This is why Paul digs in the way he does. And many pastors fail or get entangled in these very areas. Because what's going to be the most important theme throughout this whole thing, when we think about the house... We're going to draw out that illustration of the house and then the servant who serves in the house. We have to remember whose house it is. 
and who we serve and whose servant we are. And so the pastoral call to serve in the house of the Lord, some of you young men who desire ministry, this should be a holy fear, a reverent awe that I will have to give an account for my master's house and my master's vessels and my master's resources. And Paul loves Timothy, and he wants him to be a faithful servant. And he encourages this young man to continue in the faith and continue serving well in Ephesus. So let's pick up in verse 22. I'm going to read 22 through 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for silence. Thank you for the brief moments in our lives when we can still our minds and still our hearts, reorient our thoughts and affections on you. Lord, would you help us this morning as we learn from your word that we'd be faithful stewards in your house, that everyone who serves, serves one master. that you have filled your house with honorable vessels, that we may encourage one another, that we may walk together and run together, that we may call upon your name in times of trial and times of plenty, that you would receive the glory in our lives and in the restoration of sinners to your grace and your mercy. Would you use this time in your word to strengthen and build up and unify your body and send us out into this world as your ambassadors. Servants, Jesus Christ, and also brothers, that his name would be lifted up high and exalted among the nations. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So, when you begin with the the word so, or therefore, or for, it tells you that this is not a new idea. It tells you, look what just happened. So, look what came before. So, or, since you are an honorable vessel. All right, Timothy, don't forget my illustration. Since you are an honorable vessel, the Father has set you apart. He's made you useful to the Son. And he's prepared you for every good work in the Spirit. Everything we looked at last week was Trinitarian as well. The Father sets us apart. The Son makes us useful, and we do good works through the Spirit. Timothy, that's who you are. That's what the triune God has done in you. Now cleanse yourself. Make yourself ready. I like how uh, Kent Hughes describes the, the, the movement in this text. From the making of an honorable vessel in 20 and 21 to the maintaining in the ministry 
of an honorable vessel in 22 through 26. We're moving from the making and crafting of the vessel by the potter to the maintaining and ministry of the vessel out of that creation. So we're really going to land pretty heavily on this first verse because this is, this is our foundation. Uh, this is the, the imagery that we need going forward. This is what will maintain and sustain Timothy in his pastoral ministry. And Paul loves teaching by comparing and contrasting. Look at this, now do this. In light of this, here's what we do with this. And so well, this is where we're going to spend most of our time because I want you to understand this. Um, the, the contrasting of fleeing and pursuing. Paul uses this often, this language of fleeing and pursuing. We covered the same exact formula in 1 Timothy. Just flip one page back in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says almost the exact same thing in verse 11. As he's talking about those with false doctrine and those with false motives who are wanting to get rich off of the gospel. Verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, what he just talked about, but instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. That is the good fight. What we pursue, this is where our energy is toward, what is good. Christian effort and energy is forward. It is not backward. We do not fight battles that have already been won. We move forward toward righteousness. Not fighting sin. Sin is not our battle. We flee sin. We have nothing to do with it. We leave it behind. And so here, our first illustration is the picture of a runner. The runner who is fleeing from sin. Who is pursuing and running toward righteousness. The best runners... They're not looking at the person behind them. They're not looking to the right. They're not looking to the left. Where are they looking? They're looking to the finish line. They have a sole singular focus. That is where I need to go. Nothing will deter me. This is my sole aim. And I leave, will leave everything behind for it because that is the goal. And this is the Christian life. The Christian life is always twofold. Growth in Christ, sanctification, is always a two-sided coin. Flee sin, pursue righteousness. Die to yourself, live to Christ. Take up your cross, follow me. Mortify your sin, put it to death. And vivify yourself, put on Christ. This is the entirety of the Christian life. This is why we need to lean in here. So many of these illustrations and these parallels exist within the scriptures, probably because we need to get this. So first, let's look at fleeing, one of Paul's favorite words or ideas for sin. Uh, John Stott describes this as seeking safety in flight. So you are running, you are fleeing because you're getting away from harm as soon as possible. You're seeking safety in flight. Uh, there's an old Jewish proverb that says you flee sin like a snake. If you stick around and play with it, you will get bit. No one says, yeah, let, I, I want to just reason with the snake for a moment. I want to sit here and see how close I can get to it and see what will really happen. But how often do we do that with our sin? We don't realize that, snake is, that our sin is like a snake. 
to be like my, my wife when she sees a snake. The opposite direction, doesn't think about it for a second. Men were like, ah, how close can I get? How bad is he really? Like children run from strangers, we run from our sin. Like you will always run from the man with the mask and the chainsaw. You run from your sin. You run from your childish passions. So what, we are, what he's encouraging Timothy to flee here are these passions. These passions could be defined as overwhelming or violent cravings. Epithumia usually refers to hunger or lust. This is deep desires that begin to control you. Paul calls them youthful passions. Sounds like young men, doesn't it? Sounds like young men. Because when young men are passionate, watch out. For better or for worse. Because nothing will get in their way. They jump in often without thinking. They violently respond to their urges for good or bad. How many young men are strongly led by impatient cravings? How many not-so-young men are still led by strongly impatient cravings? But when those cravings are evil, when those cravings are selfish, when they're argumentative, when they're vengeful, oh, man, watch out. Because when a man is on a tear like that, who does he listen to? This is why we don't give 20-year-olds authority. Because they are still driven by youthful passions. Even Timothy. When Paul is writing to Timothy, he's probably in his late 30s, early 40s. He still considers him a young man. I'm in my early 40s. You, you, you think you're old so you get around an older man who calls you young man. And you're like, okay, I, I guess I'm not as old as, as I think I am. But even a man in his 40s, Paul says, stop acting like a child. Leave behind childish things. You must be aware. And here's the context. Because even, even though this word is typically used toward lustful things, this, there, there, there's no context here for Timothy's sexual immorality or anything like that. Here's, here's the context. Timothy has opponents in the church. And so what's the temptation of a young man who has an opponent in the church? I'm going to stop this right here. I'm going to be harsh. I'm going to be prideful. I'm going to push them into their place. I want to win. I'm going to win the argument. I'm going to show them how foolish they are. doesn't matter if I listen. doesn't matter if, if I, I love them. This is the danger of young men, as Jesse prayed earlier. Our impatience is our downfall. We expect to see results immediately. We expect that we have the answer for everyone else. And if I tell them right now, if, if, if they get their, their lives in order, they just listen to me, everything's going to come together. This is what goes on in the mind of a young man. If everyone just would just do what I do, then the world would be a better place. Paul says, Timothy, be careful of those useful passions. We must leave behind, but behind all kinds of immature, sinful desires. Okay, so that's for the young leader, for the young man in here, the young woman. But practically, as we think about fleeing youthful passions, we've often heard people talk about fighting sin. 
So practically, when we read something like this, and Paul reiterates this pattern several times, we'll see it in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. How do we fight sin? Let me let you in on a little secret. You don't. What did Jesus tell us? Cut it off. Flee it. Leave it behind. This is the same language uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Moses flees Egypt, he gets out of there as soon as, as fast as he can. Leave it dead behind. Because here's the thing. We're going to look at those who are ensnared by the enemy at the end. Satan wants nothing more than for you to be consumed with your sin. Satan wants nothing more than for you to be obsessed with it, to be defined by it, to be so focused on where you, you fail that you can't see Christ. Paul says, leave that behind, flee it. What happens to the runner who, as he's running, shifts his head just a degree? We've all seen these, these guys who look back just for a moment to see how close his competition is. Just enough will get you off course. But the good runners, they do not look back for a second. We think about armies. When armies are marching toward an enemy, they're marching toward victory. They don't look back for enemies who are already defeated. They don't look back to enemies who are powerless. Here's what I need to tell you this morning. Our master has defeated sin on the cross. We don't need to crucify it again. We don't need to defeat a or to beat a defeating enemy. We don't need to indulge it. We don't need to engage with it. This is not the good fight. The good fight is what we'll look at in a moment, pursuing righteousness. I think often we forget. We know that we are justified by our faith. We know that it is by God's grace. We know we could never earn it, but man, do we try. Man, do we think that, all right, I can't move forward. I can't serve Christ until I've conquered this thing. How many times do I come into your sentences when you think about sin versus Christ? Jesus said, cut it off. Paul said, flee it. Don't try to fight it. Leave it behind. Instead, that's not where your energy goes. Here's where your energy goes. Pursue righteousness. So, Paul here is very particular in the words he uses. He, he replaces one violent verb for another violent verb. This pursue is run in a direction violently. Run after something with all of your exertion. Instead of your violent cravings, the, the, uh, the, uh, the passions that you were led by before, now pursue violently in the other direction. This also is translated often in the book of Acts as persecute. Paul, the persecutor of the church, is saying you need to go after righteousness as zealously as I went after the church. You need to have all of your energy. We don't waste energy fighting defeated enemies. We ra- our energy is fully forward. Here's what our energy and our effort should be toward. Remember, this is the, the, the Christian life. Repentance is turning from and turning to. I'm going to turn from these things. I'm not going to look at them. I'm not going to think about them. And I'm going to turn to these things. Righteousness. This is right attitude. 
right actions, the things that are just and pleasing to God, the things that are in line with, with God's character and what he desires for us. Seek those things. Seek his kingdom. Seek what pleases him. Pursue faith. This is what is needed to pursue righteousness because we must trust God. We must grow in our trust for God. We must grow in our trust for the finished work of Christ and the promise that the Spirit is sanctifying and growing us. We must pursue and grow in love. This is the motivation for our faith. And this is what motivates us toward righteousness. Because if we know how great as sinners we are, if we know how much God loves us in sending his son for, for us, if we know how much the, 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 the son's love displayed on the cross by taking on the wrath of God, how could we not love him more and run after righteousness? How could we not love others who are covered by the blood of our Savior? We pursue peace because in the gospel the Lord has given us peace. We have peace in Christ right now. We have peace that passes understanding because the world can't take our peace away. So what do we do? We seek it and we promote it. We, we guard it and we encourage it within the body. Righteousness, faith, love, peace. This is where our energy should be. So let's just take an account this morning. Is this where your energy is? Are you fleeing desires? Are you running away from your sin the way that Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife? Left his clothes and everything, got out of there. Are you pursuing these things? Are you, are you running after these things the way the world runs after what it loves? What does the world love? Power and acceptance and money and all these other things. It chases after them with all its heart. Do the sons of the kingdom chase after the things of God with the same energy, with the same fervor, with greater fervor than the world. Because this, these things, these are what help us to endure. These are the things that increase our stamina in the race. Because if you are living righteously, if you are walking by faith and not by sight, trusting in the Lord, if you are responding out of love and gratefulness for the Lord, if you are walking in the peace of the Lord and seeking those who have peace to walk alongside of you, how well do you think you'll run? But if you're selfish and your passions and your desires are trying to propel you, that will never work. And the beauty of this is that we don't run alone. I love Philippians 3 for this. Paul uses the same illustration and he applies it within the church. Um, Paul's Addressing the resurrection here and glorification. Picking up in verse 12 of Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection, glorification, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. We are, we are running, we are pursuing glory because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is the motivation, saints. We press on, we move forward. Why? Because of Christ. I am making my identity in Christ my own because he's given it to me. Because he has paid for it. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on. What's the goal, Paul? For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. You want to be mature? Think this way. Put down the Play-Doh and the blocks. Put down the immature things of childish desires. Learn, if you're crawling right now, great, crawl faster. Learn how to walk. If you're walking right now, learn how to run. Be mature. Press on. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any and if any in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Again, this is not works righteousness. Because you have obtained it, because Christ has made you his own, now you get to run. Now you get to fly. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Brothers and sisters, here's the good news. We don't do this alone. We imitate those who imitate Christ and we look to those who are mature and we say, teach me how to run or I'm just going to run behind you so I can watch you. This is the same thing Paul says back in 2 Timothy. He says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is an ongoing sense. It's not just someone who calls on the Lord once, but continually. Not just out of desperation, but out of habit. But out of healthy communication. We call on him because the one who brought us into new life will sustain us in new life. We need him for everything. And we call on him out of a pure heart. This is the same root, meaning the same word group, as in verse 21 where he says, cleanse yourself. We call out of a cleansed heart. And the servant of Christ runs like Christ and because Christ, because of Christ. That's why I'd be remiss if I didn't take you to Hebrews 12. Now, we look at this often, but I want to bring it into the context of our text. Halfway through verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. Notice you see both of those. Flee. Lay it aside. Have nothing to do with your sin. The, the runners in those days, you've probably heard this before, but the runners in those days, to make sure they run as quickly as possible, they would get rid of everything. Everything. They would run butt naked. So there would be no hindrance to their race. Christians, we don't need to do that literally, but figuratively. You strip yourself of everything that might weigh you down in the race. You get rid of everything. Lay that weight aside so that you can run with endurance the race that is set before you. Notice, the emphasis is always on what's before, not what's behind. And what is before, what is worth the running, what is worth the effort, what is worth the pursuing, looking to Jesus. Jesus is the starting line of our race and the finish line of our race. And we look to him. And how is it we can look to him confidently? Because the founder and perfecter of our faith ran before us. 
And he considered our salvation joy. He endured the cross. He endured the shame. You can endure a little bit of discomfort. You can endure a little bit of dying to yourself because your Savior died for you. And not only did he die, but now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the motivation of the race of the saint. We look at our Savior who ran the race before us, who is now at the right hand of the Father, and we have confidence. He said, I am risen, and in me, in me you are risen indeed. And so we, we, we run out of that. And we run together. There is a great cloud of witnesses who went before us and a great cloud of witnesses who run with us. We run together. We walk together in the Spirit as new creations. So when Paul says, pursue with those who call in the name of the Lord with a pure heart, this is an encouragement to every believer in Christ. You're not the only one running. You're not the only one who Christ came for. You're not the only one struggling and limping. But you're not the only one who's called to deny yourself and live for Christ. We are all called to flee and pursue. And we do this while calling on him for help continually. Because he's purified our heart. But we continue to cleanse ourselves from unrighteousness. And we do this together in fellowship with others. Bringing back our illustration from last week, that is what a house of honorable vessels looks like. People all moving in the same direction, growing in the image of Christ, leaving behind the old self and taking on the new. This is the call to Timothy in the local church. This is why we needed to spend so much time laying this, this foundation. Because if you get nothing else, most of the rest of this is going to be for the pastor. But for every Christian, this is so essential. Take stock. Is my energy and my effort forward to righteousness? The upward goal, looking on Christ, am I too consumed looking back? Am I too consumed with wrestling with the old man and the things that have already been taken care of on the cross? So this is why he says in verse 23, you want to keep it up? You want to keep running well? Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. This again is in the singular. Timothy, as pastor, the example that you set is not to engage in childish disputes, not to get into pride, prideful arguments, not to get into these distractions. This has been a constant theme in First and Second Timothy again and again and again. It's almost like, okay, we know, we get it, there are false teachers. But do you? Just a few moments ago, a few uh, verses ago, in 14 through 17, the same thing. Charge them before God, do not quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Here's the problem. Debates and arguments and empty quarrels within the church, it ruins people, little by little, drop by drop. Those who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, verse 18, they are upsetting the faith of some. Timothy, you and your ministry and your church have nothing to do with these things. It ruins the hearers. It upsets their, their, their faith. Jesus says, if you make one of these little ones stumble, if you, if you put a stumbling block before my children, you're better off putting a millstone around your neck and jumping in the sea. 
that would be better for you. There is great condemnation for those who distort the word of God and who upset the faith of the people of God. Now, let's just be clear. We're not talking about first-tier primary issues here. Hyomenes, who Paul mentioned, was excommunicated for his views on the resurrection. That is primary. You do not distort the person or work of Christ. That they will cast you out of the church for. That is primary. That is fighting the good fight. But the problem is, I think the issue here is many young men especially, everything becomes a primary issue. The primary issues, the, the, the things that we hold dearly and will never let go of, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, we do not let go of. The nature of our God, triune, one in substance, three in person. Christ, fully God, fully man. Salvation through Christ alone, through grace alone. The return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. The recreation of all things. Those are primary things. We do not let go of those things and we fight for them. That is the good fight. But there are so many little petty squabbles and things that become such a distraction from ministry. And Timothy, you're not to get drawn into that. This is so much an issue that he mentions it in 1 Timothy and Titus. And just quickly, 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that's primary. What Christ says and what leads to godliness in his people. He is puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Also, Titus 3, 9 and 10, probably two pages the other way in your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. These things could seem like a good thing in, in the moment. But what happens? Paul hates division, just like Jesus hates division. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Our Lord takes the unity and purity and peace of his bride very seriously, and, and so does Paul. And so when Paul says here, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, these are two fascinating Greek words. Foolish means to have a mental deficiency. Your elevator does not go up to the top floor. Two, ignorant, literally without learning. You skipped way more school than uh, you, you needed to. This is stupid and uneducated. Dumb and dumber. Do not be the Harry and Lloyd of the local church. Paul says this is how ridiculous that is, that you would put anything on tear with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would pollute it with some half-brained schemes, with some unthought-out, illogical arguments. You know what this leads to. Have nothing to do with them because you know that they breed quarrels. Here's another great picture. 
when two people really love each other and they really love to argue, they come together and they make little argument babies. This is what Paul is saying here. These, they, they come together and they breed quarrels. Young men love quarrels. We love to fight. We love to prove ourselves. We love to show how smart we are. And it doesn't stop when you learn theology. I think it just opens up the door for more of it. But we have to ask ourselves when we are tempted to get in an argument, are we defending ourselves or are we defending Christ? Are we serving our pride and our ends? Or are we serving the master who bought us with his blood? Pastors must be above petty quarrels. Pastors cannot be involved in gossip and childishness that often arises in the church. We must counsel and we must correct to that end. It is our job to guard the unity and maturity and the peace that Christ desires for his people. Now is when we get into our next analogy, that of a servant, verse 24. So once we got that, that set up, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Let's think about servant for a moment. The word here, doulos. Many of you may have heard of the word often translated slave, but probably best translated bondservant. It's not our idea of modern slavery, but it's this idea that I serve the one who I am bonded to. I have pledged my allegiance. I give my life and my efforts to my master and to his aim. Timothy, remember that you are a servant and remember who you serve. Because as Paul told us in Romans 6, you're no longer slaves to sin, but you are now slaves to righteousness. You serve him in his righteousness. Um, I want to give a picture of what the servant of the Lord should be in Isaiah chapter 50. Jesus, obviously, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42 especially, is the servant of the Lord, the kind teacher the bringer of good news, the suffering servant in chapter 53. But I think this is a great picture of ministry and a great picture of the character and countenance of one who serves the Lord among the people. Look at these words, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Here's what it means to be a teacher. Here's what it looks like that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. When we're, when we're teaching, we often need a hammer. But many times it's just a cool cup of water or a salve or binding up a wound. Good teachers know how to sustain with a word the ones who are weary. Good teachers are sustained by the word of God, morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. A good teacher is always learning. A good servant does not forget to serve his master. A good servant gives glory to his master. Verse, four, verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. A good servant is obedient. I turned not backwards. Sound familiar? Not looking back to what was behind. I turned not backward. I gave my back 
to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We can serve because this is how our Savior served us. Our Savior gave his back to the lashes, gave his face to those who would pluck out his beard and spit in his eyes. And he did it without lashing out, without defending himself. He humbly took the abuse of those who would hate him. Verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. Amen. This is an ongoing help. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Too many pastors are worried about what people think. But the truth is, there's only one opinion that matters. The one who helps me vindicates me. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I am not moving. I am a rock. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Praise God. How many of the Old Testament apostles or prophets were hated? The entire nation turned against them. But they knew that if they were faithful to the Lord, they would not be put to shame. It is no different for us today. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Who will contend with me? I stand upon the word of God. What do you bring? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me again. If God helps me, if God is for us, who could be against us? The Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Christ has reconciled us. Who can condemn us? Behold all of them. All of the opponents will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's exactly what we're dealing with here. The servant of the Lord who identifies this who brings the word of the Lord. That's why Paul said in our last book, we are to honor those who labor in preaching and teaching. Because we are the ones. We do not bring light, but we point to the light. We shine the light of the word upon darkness. Because our goal is that you fear the Lord. Our goal is that you learn to rely on your God. Our goal is that you trust in the name of the Lord. And we need to tell you again and again and again that he is faithful. Timothy, this is what you need in the church of Ephesus. This is what you need to remember. This is who the servant of the Lord is. So Timothy, remember the one who bought you. Remember the one who redeemed you. Remember the one who helps you. Serve him first. Picking up our analogy, we labor in his house with his children. There is a great weight and expectation here. Let's paint another picture. Imagine you work in a house, a rich man's house. He's got this palatial estate, and he's got a whole bunch of kids. And they're running around, and some are obedient, and some are just terrible. Some are unruly, some are undisciplined. You are tasked as the schoolmaster. You are tasked to teach Train them up and discipline them. 
Here's the other catch. You've made an agreement with this, this, this master. He paid off all your debt. He brought you into his house. And you said, I will, I, you now own my life. I've bonded myself to you. He said, you will never want for another thing in your life. I'll take care of all of your needs. All I ask is that you bring up my children as if they were your own. As a schoolmaster, how would you treat those children? Would you become resentful toward the unruly children? What would you teach them? Would you teach them your own thoughts, your own wisdom, or would you teach them as the master of the house would want you to teach them? This is the picture of the servant of the Lord. I have tasked you with a great responsibility. These are my children. This is my house. And so, pastor, it is easy to forget that this is the Lord's house. These are the Lord's children. We must treat them like they are our own, but they belong to another, which should give us a greater weight and a greater fear because he's going to expect them in better condition than when he left them with us. So now let's look at the picture of that servant. As Paul gives a list, Paul loves lists. And we'll go through a, another list here. And the Lord's servant must not be. These are expectations. These are commands. The servant of the Lord, he's first in battle and first in example. Must not be quarrelsome. We, we've already dealt with that. But it's paired with the next one. You must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. We are not to have combative, argumentative natures. The example of what we say will be seen in the treatment of everyone. Because we do need to teach, but notice he begins here. Do you think your teaching is going to have any effect if you're known as being argumentative and quarrelsome and you're not kind? These things, you cannot separate them out. They all need to go together. He must be able to teach. This is a constant theme of leading and governing biblically. You must be able to divide the word of God as the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 50, as one who is taught. We are constantly learning. We are constantly growing so we can teach others also. Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This church should outlast you. Because you have passed the torch on well. And enable to do that, enable, and um, if you're being able to do that, you must patiently endure evil. Um, this is not easy. It is hard, as Jesse was saying earlier, to be patient with those who hate you. To be patient with those who defy the name of the Lord. Those who just obstinately continue to walk in their sin. But how much did Christ endure for us? How often do we forget the gospel? How patient is Christ with you? How much of your evil heart does he endure? Every bit of it on the cross. So that is why we who preach the gospel must remember the gospel to be patient in the gospel. Now this is not limp-wristed passivity. We need to be able to correct our opponents. This is instruction. This is counseling. 
This is getting the sheep out of immaturity to maturity. This is hard to correct opponents. This is hard to have difficult conversations. This is hard to tell people, no, that is wrong, that is a lie, that is not biblical. But it is necessary, and it can be done with gentleness. Here's what he tells Titus in chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent must or may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is hard. Being honest here. This is hard. When someone opposes you, that you still have to be gentle. You still have to be kind. You still have to act with integrity so that they can walk away like, man, I hate that guy, but I've got nothing bad to say about him. That's tough. That's why he says you must correct them with gentleness. This is not weakness. Gentleness gentleness is strength with restraint. This is a calm humility. Any Neanderthal can club his opponents over the head with what he believes. But a wise, mature man can lovingly, consistently, patiently, gently correct according to the word of God. I love the picture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 of how Paul loved the church in Thessalonica. This is all the strength of the apostle Paul and all the tender nurturing of a nursing mother. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7. But we were gentle among you like nursing like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I think a lot of pastors kind of have a hard time picturing ourselves like that, but that's how we're to be. Christ called himself a mother hen, bringing his, his chicks in, even though they want to run every way. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Why? Because you have become very dear to us. This is a picture of pastoral ministry. Paul models it for us here. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the the, the gospel. Paul does not shy away from the gospel, of course. It is always primary, but it's never divorced. For his dear love and concern for his brothers and sisters. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. This is the aim of leaders in the church. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You are his servant. You are to love them well. And brothers and sisters, we have a special obligation to bear with other believers, even the difficult ones. Because every one of us in this room have been the difficult one. How patient is our Savior with us? It's hard to love immature people. It's hard to love obstinate people. It's hard to love people when they oppose you. Because we're not easy to love either. But Christ loved us enough to die for us and lay down his life for us. That is the call in the local church. So I want you to notice, going back to 2 Timothy, Paul's list here. Notice that how you live... And how you speak is just as important as what you speak. Let me say that again. How you live and how you speak is just as as important as what 
what you speak, if you speak at all. Um, your teaching will fall flat if your life doesn't complement it. There is nowhere in Scripture where, it content, where the Bible condones being a jerk as long as you're right. Just like the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3, there is one doctrinal qualification. All the rest are character qualifications. This should tell us something. Pastors are to present Christ's bride mature and unified. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I want to bring all these together because Paul uses so many of these. This gives us another picture. We know the phrase to speak the truth in love, but why are we called to speak the truth in love? Let's look at the context. This all goes back to the people of God and the house of God. He begins in verse 11 with the servants of God. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. These themes keep reoccurring. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes, foolish and ignorant controversies. Rather, leave those things behind, pursue these things. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Timothy, why are you doing this? Why do you leave those things behind? Why do you pursue these things? Because I want my body to grow. I want my body to be united. I want my body to be built up. I want every member of my body to be running at full capacity in love with one another. That is a great witness to the world when the church loves like no other, serves like no other, when the church is built up and healthier and better organized than any man-made institution, it is to our detriment that that's rarely the case. And so while we're doing this, there are opponents. What should you pray? We kind of come to our last section here, which will be our smallest of the three sections. Paul gets us here. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Let's stop here for a moment. God may grant. Here's the other thing, Pastor. God is sovereign. Notice here. Paul does not say, all right, Timothy, if you play all your, your, your cards right, maybe you can convince them to repent. No, we do all this and pray that God may grant them. We trust the sovereign mercy of our God and trust that no one is beyond hope. Repentance, this is the goal for those who oppose the servants of the Lord. Repentance is a radical change in heart and action. And the same process. Repentance is a call to flee what is behind and pursue what is ahead. And that comes from God. Just like we can't save you, just like we can't sanctify you, we can't convict you, we can't make you repent. We can only call you to repentance. We can only implore you to call upon the name of the Lord. We can only plead with you, as Paul did. Turn from your wicked ways. 
turn from this false doctrine, this empty gospel. And if this is you today, this is the best thing I can tell you to do. I can't save you. I can't wave a magic wand over your head. I can only tell you repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that sin that you are playing with, it's not a snake that will bite you. It's a snake that has its fangs in you. And that venom is coursing through your veins. And it will kill you. There is only one who can save. There is only one who can grant repentance. Call out to him. And for the believer who is struggling right now, for the believer who is still burdened with their own sin, call out to him from a pure heart. He will grant you repentance. And that repentance leads to a knowledge of truth. A repentance flows out of our faith. And in that repentance, there's this little seed that takes root in our heart. And it will grow into knowledge of the truth. And so here's what we trust in. When we tend to be impatient in our lives or in others, for unbelievers, for non-believers, God grants repentance in his time. We need to rest in him. We labor in the hope that our God saves sinners because I am standing in front of you. Verse 26, this repentance is that they may come to their senses. Uh, this in the Greek is they may come to their senses again or come back to their senses and escape. There's a sense here that, there's an, that they, Paul's assuming that these are believers. He's, he's talking about believers who are coming back to their sentences, senses. That they may escape the snare of the devil after being, after being captured by him to do his will. We're not trying to bury or defeat our opponents. They're wayward sheep. We're trying to call them back home. And we rejoice when they do. Our last passage here, Luke 15. Luke 15, 8 through 10. Um, Jesus' beautiful parable of the lost coin. Such a simple parable, but this greatly applies here. Luke 15, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that, that I had lost. This is the great joy of ministry. This is the great joy of walking alongside brothers and sisters. We get to see God redeem lost sinners. He brings home lost sheep and lost coins. And what happens? We rejoice not only on earth, verse 10, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is why we're in ministry. We want to see God glorified in sinners coming to their senses. And I've had the privilege of seeing this several times where we have had to lovingly, patiently, deliberately discipline members of this body. And even non-members, we have to ask them to not come back because they were quarrelsome, they were divisive. And I got a call this week from one of them who expressed a desire to repent, who expressed seeking forgiveness, recognizing the lies of the world and that everything we warned 
would happen, happened, and desires reconciliation. We are praying that that is true. Providentially, the Lord provided that conversation earlier this week. This is the reminder of what we do in ministry. All right, real quick on those people who are captured, and then the uh, kids can color in that uh, mouse in the trap. And this is why um, Carter drew that in there. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured. This is important. They are captured alive. This is a word for those who are taken prisoner alive. They are enslaved and snared by their sin, waiting to be devoured. Let me think of Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel is a lot of gospel parallels. They're basically orphans, abandoned by their parents in the woods. They're walking around with no food, no place to sleep, and they come across a house. This house is made with candy. Isn't that like sin? It's just covered in Skittles. It's, it's like everything a kid wants, and they just start eating the, 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 the shingles, the, the outside of the house. And this very welcoming older woman invites them in and gives them clothes and gives them a meal and, and puts them in their bed. And they think, wow, we're finally home. We've got food. We've got safety. Isn't that what sin promises us? And then the next thing she does is she locks the door. And they realize, oh, this is a very comfortable prison. But the moral of the story is that Hansel and Gretel, Gretel work together. And that they use their minds and get away from the clutches of this wicked witch. Um, but the gospel parallel there is that sin draw, calls orphans with the enticement of candy and comfort but desires to eat you whole. Yet we can't save ourselves. That is the only difference. Made me think of, in my quest to rid my neighborhood of raccoons, I caught a possum. And so opossums are nasty, evil-looking little creatures. Um, but he was so scared in this cage. You ever seen those things? They will grip. Uh, they will not let go. This guy, I took him out to release him. I was kind. I'd released him this time. Um, but he, he, he didn't want to let go of the cage, even when the door is open. For five solid minutes, he was holding on to his cage with all that he could, even when the door is open. I held it open, and I walked away. I was shaking that thing. I did everything I could, and I just walked away. He was so used to his imprisonment that he wouldn't even go through the door. This is what we're calling sinners to. Sinners are so comfortable and so used to their trap. They're holding on to their own imprisonment. They are captured alive to do the will of Satan, and there's one door. There is one way out. That is what we are calling people to. There is one door. I can't make you walk through it, but I can point you to it. Some are diabolically opposed to Christ, and they love their imprisonment. But many are just ensnared sheep who think they can cuddle up with wolves and not get bitten. They need to be gently called to the door, to come through the door. And they're scared, and they're blinded, so we must be patient. So brothers and sisters, if this is the goal, if this is ministry, that we run with maturity in Christ, and that we call those who are ensnared to sin to come along with us, we have to leave behind our youthful pride. There is a greater goal. Brothers and sisters, let's keep our eyes on the prize. Run well, serve well, 
Our God's timing is perfect. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you. We thank you that you have redeemed us from the pit. That while we went after houses made of candy, filled with evil witches who wanted to throw us in the oven and eat us, you were the door. You called us out of our sin, out of our ensnarement, that we might walk in newness of life in you. Lord, help us as we walk this, this Christian life to leave behind the things of old, to put on the new things, to live in Christ. May your church not be distracted with petty arguments and quarrels. May we take up the good fight. May we rise up as servants and soldiers marching forward on to glory, the upward call of Christ, not what lays behind, but what lays ahead, because it is Christ who went before us and Christ who will meet us. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.